All right, thank you, Pastor Mike. <clears throat> so 1 Peter 5 is going to be our text this morning that we are covering. So hope you have your Bibles and you can turn there. If you don't, you might be able to download a quick app on your phone. And we're using the ESV this morning. I'm just going to move right into the sermon um, right now. Sometimes we spend some time in prayer, but we're going to move right into the sermon. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. So have you ever known brothers and sisters to be hurtful towards one another because they were really humble people? Or have you ever known a church fight to happen because all of the members involved were walking in humility? Have you ever heard of a marriage blowing up among genuinely humble people and you hear that they're combative or ugly and the whole thing is falling apart? Have you read stories in the Word of God where God stands in judgment against those who are humble? And he oppresses the humble, but gives grace and favor to the proud? <clears throat> of course, we don't see these things. God uses humility to keep people in relationships, not to blow them apart. It's a virtue that God leads us into, instructing us with his word, empowering us with his spirit. <clears throat> and it's this humility that he uses to keep us in relationship with one another's with one another and with him. <clears throat> the passage that we're studying this morning is a call to humility in our lives, specifically within the area of three particular relationships. First, it's relationship to the elders. There's a call for humility from the congregation to be in humble submission to the elders. You see that in verse 5. You also see another relationship here, and this is the relationship of other Christians. There's a call for us to practice humility in the context of relationships with other Christians. That's also in verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And then in verse 6, we see that humility is called for our relationship with God. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So those are the three relationships that we see in this passage, and God is calling us to walk in humility in the context of those three relationships. But before we get to those relationships, let's ask two questions. Number one is this. What is at the core of humility? What is at the core of humility? We kind of know what humility looks like externally, you know, sort of carrying out acts of service. But what is under those acts of service what gives fruit to those acts of service? Well, one of the most well-known passages that teaches on humility is Philippians chapter 2. So let's look at that for just a minute. Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition, inward, that would be something inside of you, or conceit. But in humility, note the word count or consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That would be external. Now, have this mind, this is internal. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, consider, think, regard 
That's internal. Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedience and carrying out acts of service is clearly the fruit of humility. It's truly the outworking of humility. But what are the roots that give life to this fruit? What is deep down beneath the surface of genuine humility? And as I was reading that passage from Philippians 2, three times the Apostle Paul says, there is something that has to take place in your mind with your thoughts. And so he said, count others. That has this idea of regard others, intentionally think about others this way. And then he says, have this mind about others. And then he says, Jesus considered or counted others this way. The foundation of humility is not mere external acts of service that you go through in order to look humble. The foundation for humility, the true foundation for humility that that blossoms into acts of service is your mind. It's the way that you think. And specifically, it is thinking of yourself less and less and thinking of the people whom God has put into your life more and more. You've probably been to a restaurant, maybe in this last week, or a store. You've been on the phone with someone, perhaps, who is willing to take your order or retrieve a product for you. They went and did something, and they could say, see, I was humble in doing that. But their attitude toward you conveys a sense of, inconvenienced me, disdain. They carried out the act of service, but it wasn't carried out with this attitude of, I'm thinking about you. I'm going to do this, but only because I have to. You've seen that, and that kind of act of service is not humility. It's actually an act carried out in pride. C.S. Lewis, speaking about humility, talked about it in this way. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy or smarmy, that's a flattery person, who is always telling you that he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. In fact, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's the idea of someone who is truly humble. They're not thinking, oh, how am I going to look as I do this? Or I better do this so that I look good. A truly humble person, Philippians chapter 2, has this mind that I'm all in to the person whom God has put in front of me and I'm here to serve them and I'm here to love them. Humility is this Christ-like mind that you can think of others as being significant without having to think about yourself in terms of how you look before them or how this is going to reciprocate. And then what we see with humility is really that when God is leading us into humility and crushing our pride, it's actually a freedom from yourself. 
It's a freedom from thinking about yourself while you can be free to enjoy other people and the, the opportunities that God has called you into. And this is where we need to be this morning. You've met people who can look you in the eye or who can be all in in that moment and that you don't feel like they're distracted moving on to the next thing. They're truly humble people thinking about you. And that's what God is calling us to in this passage, to be humble. Now, it's interesting, at the end of 1 Peter, we've been studying this for several months, why would Peter need to include a call to humility in his letter? I mean, keep in mind that these Christians have, like, stepped away from the world in the sense that they are exiles now and following Jesus Christ. These Christians are suffering under the pressures of the world as they've been sort of ostracized. Life is difficult for them. Society has rejected them. Why would Peter need to give people who are sort of beaten up and suffering a call to humility? Do beaten up people, suffering people, need humility? Yes, because what Satan loves to do with Christians in suffering is convince us that we are justified to kind of lull ourselves into self-pity. He loves to rock us in that cradle of self-sorrow. He loves to take us into a downward spiral where our focus is on us, where we're saying questions to ourselves, well, what about me? What if I don't get the dream that these other people have gotten to live out? What about how this will take away from who I'm supposed to be as a person because other people are getting what I want and I'm the one who is left behind or I'm the one who's losing? This isn't fair. And somehow in suffering, folks, don't we tend to justify our self-pity? And what Peter is doing at the end of this book here is he recognizes that they are really experiencing tough times, and it's right for him to call them to humility. It's right for you to be called to humility this morning. Biblical humility in a Christian's life begins with a heart and mind that is free from thinking about ourselves, even in the midst of suffering. It's a path forward that God gives us to actually live in freedom from ourselves. And so this morning, he's giving us three relationships that we need to be intentionally focused on. So let's walk through these verses this morning for the next few minutes. First off is humility with your elders. Humility with your elders. You see it in verse 5 where he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now the term elder, uh, we've heard this many times from people who have gray hairs, right? To young people, hey, Submit to your elders right now and go pick up my candy wrapper or something like that. Well, the term elder is not being used in terms of age here specifically. Last week or two weeks ago, I should say, we studied verses 1 through 4 where Peter is addressing the elders, pastors of the church. And so he uses this term elder, pastor, to describe and to teach men how to lead the church in non-domineering ways for the good of the flock. And Peter is giving a nudge to those who are younger within the context of the church to, hey, look to your elders, 
Look to your spiritual leadership within your church family, and you should aim to be submissive to them. You should aim to be humble before them. Why would Peter specifically call out the younger in the church to be in submission to the elders? Like, why, why didn't he just say, now all of you be in submission to the elders? Why, why specifically the younger? And all of the older people have a little smirk on their face right now. Uh, Mark Vrogup, who was a men's conference speaker for us, wrote the following sentences about humility and submitting to elders. He said, let me ask you what you were like when you were younger. How did you view authority? How did you view spiritual authority? I know that as I look back on my own life, there is a pretty clear pattern in myself and in those who were my age. Younger people in general can be quick to allow their zeal and their lack of life experience to cause them to be disrespectful, dismissive, or disobedient to those in authority. I felt this when I was a youth pastor. I saw things that the senior pastor did or things that he refused to do, and I would think, that's not what I would do. Why does he do that? Does he know what he's doing? But I also remember the moment after becoming a senior pastor that I looked out my office window and said out loud, I had no idea how hard and complicated this job really was. I think older people generally get that that in youth we're zealous and we think we have good ideas and we're ready to conquer the world. And then the older that we get, God continues to grow our perspective. He chips away at our pride and cultivates humility within us. If you're a young person this morning, and take that however you want to, whatever age that might be, it is good for you to pursue submissive, humble obedience to spiritual leadership, which means you won't always agree with your elders, but it's right for you to be in submission to them. We see that younger people in our society really struggle with authority, and we've seen it over the last few years, whether it's the political left with the marches in cities, or the political right with people storming the state capitol and D.C. As you look at that, generally, what were the ages of people that were dismissing authority in their lives? It's generally the younger. The average age of a person incarcerated who is dismissing authority, average age is somewhere in the mid-20s. Generally speaking, young people, it's good for us to know and realize that we have challenges in submitting to those in authority over us. And so what Peter is doing is he's saying, hey, come along with me. You are going to disagree with your elders. Will your elders always be right 100% of the time about everything in life? Well, they're fallible. They're not God. And the answer to that question is no, they won't be right 100% of the time but probably more times than not, they are right, and it is right for you to have a posture, a Christ-like mindset, where you don't disdain, dismiss them, but you think not about yourself, you think about them. Let me be free from myself and not be opposing or feeling that tension of, I have to have it my way. That's what God is calling us to as a church. And so Peter is raising our awareness, especially for younger people, especially when life is difficult, 
cultivate humility towards your elders. It's a good thing to find yourself submitting to spiritual leadership in your life. Now, this message sounds kind of crazy to the world, where the idea of authority, headship, is kind of categorized in words now that you may have seen on the news this last week. Patriarchy? Like, cast all of this off. And so you come to the Bible and you see, no, 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 there's another way to live. Authority is actually good. Authority doesn't need to be cast off. Authority needs to be lived under. So this sounds crazy to the world. Be subject to your, war- to your elders. It can almost sound, oh no, this is going to be a cult. But as Christians, as those who have surrendered ourselves to the truth of God's word, keep in mind that this is written within a context. Why or for what reason is God calling people to be submissive to the elders? Well, verses 1 through 4, again, two weeks ago we studied this. God has given elders to the church. He's specifically, Ephesians 4, given pastors as gifts to the church. And so in this gift to the church, we know God cares about his people. God's not leaving his flock without leaders. And so within his plan, he brings in elders and shepherds and pastors and teachers. And in verses 1 through 4, he addressed them to be non-domineering, to be non-compulsive, but to be willing and eager and leading by example, to be gentle as a shepherd would be with sheep. And so as you have this shepherd who genuinely cares about the flock, as shepherds are pouring their hearts out for you, they want to see your best. They're doing this for your best, not for themselves. And so the reason here is that godly elders are looking out for your relationship with Christ. So Peter's thought here is that when a pastor is practicing biblical leadership and shepherding the flock, he is aiming to honor God by leading you towards Christ, and it's good to be in humble submission to your elders. So humility ought to characterize your thoughts towards your pastoral leadership, and out of those thoughts, aim to be submissive and humble. Peter moves into the second relationship here. In the second part of verse 5, he tells us that there ought to be humility that's cultivated in the context of relationship with other Christians. So verse 5, you say, you see, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Okay, that was point number one. Here's the second area of relationships. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. My bad on the screen up there. We'll get to those verses in just a second. Notice the picture that Peter gives to us in this verse, in verse 5b here. Not those verses up on the screen. But in verse 5 here, he gives us this picture of how humility is supposed to be seen. What's the picture? It's supposed to be clothing. I look at all of you and I see red shirts and I see white shirts and I see blue shirts and I see shirts with patterns and stripes and solids and all kinds of stuff. I see coats, I see ties, those sorts of, I see your clothing and that gives me an impression. You see my clothing up here and it gives you an impression of me. I ran into Josh Thompson this last week into his garage and there he is with a shirt that is covered with grease and oil and blue mechanic pants. And when you see that kind of clothing, you know who that guy is and what he does. He's a mechanic. 
I ran into a state police officer in an ice cream shop this last week, and there he is. He's clothed in his blues there, and he's got things on his waist here, and he's got the radio up here, on, and you see what is clothing him, and right away you know who he is. The idea here is that Christians ought to be so covered, clothed, maybe even drenched, with this attitude and demeanor of humility that we would see it in one another's lives. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on 1 Peter, wrote that humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. So let me ask you a question. What do people see when they see you? Do they see someone who has to have their way? Do they see someone who is continually looking into themselves? Jesus' example in life and the principle from uh, Philippians chapter 2 is that he was continually having this mind where he was here to serve and humbly relate to other people, not himself. So Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He was gentle and lowly in his heart toward the disciples. I mean, you think about his ministry with the disciples who were real blockheads half the time. Instead of yelling at them, he cared for them. Instead of domineering over them, instead of quitting on them, he prayed and continually served them. He had a mind, this is what clothing with humility looks like. Now, what could this look like practically in the life of the church? Let me give you three practices, and that's where these verses come up. If we were to be a church that is clothed with humility— Christians who were adorned with humility, what would we see within the context of the church? Here are three practical things that we would see, not exclusive, all right? Hopefully you would see more. Number one is this. With humility, you would see the practice of confession of sins. The practice of humility encourages believers to practice the confession of sins. James 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We know that this takes humility to walk in because when sin is present, so many times there can be this smug attitude in our hearts that says something like, Well, I would never do anything that dumb. Or, oh great, you're unloading your sin. Now for me, this is an inconvenience for me to have to carry. God has called us to genuine humility, to be adorned with humility. And folks, one of the things that we have to realize is that there are brothers and sisters sitting right next to you, and you're one that is sitting next to them, who has battles in your life, where you need prayer. And so many times we sit on that battle and we say, I don't want to bring it into the open to allow others to work with me and to help me and encourage me because of how they will think about me. This doesn't mean we go spewing all of our junk to everyone all of the time, but surely within the life of the church, clothing yourself with humility would mean that somebody can pray for me and encourage me and I can ask for prayer and encouragement. Are you sitting on a sin that you could use help with? Prayer and encouragement 
Is it pride that's keeping that down? Second practice. The practice of humility involves genuine service in your church family. Genuine service in your church family. So Paul writing to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where we started the sermon. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. All right? Consider others to be more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, so within the life of a church family, there are always needs that are going to arise. And humility comes along and says, I see this person having a true need, and I want to help. Like, I can't be like the priest and the Levite that jumped to the other side of the road because I have to get what I have to get to. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to forsake your responsibilities that God has given to you. Trust that when God leads you to somebody, he's using you to help meet that need. Um, One of the specific applications that we need to talk about for just a few moments as a church family is that we need help. Um, There are needs within the life of our church right now, specifically with the next generation. We absolutely love our children. Um, God has blessed us with so many children, and we love seeing all of these young people come into our church here. But that requires discipleship. That requires volunteers, people to use their gifts. Our children need to be loved by our church family. Like, I see young people, I'm like, okay, they are our responsibility whom God has given to us, and we want to invest in them in such a way where they're being discipled. And so we offer nurseries and we offer classes. Um, We also have people who are working in those nurseries and classes, and they need a break. I mean, ideally, we would love to see people only working once a month in those nurseries and classes. And so when you see a need, you're looking at children, and then you're looking at your brothers and sisters who are serving. You're like, okay, let me help you, children, and let me help you, brother and sister adults, so that we can come alongside one another because this is a real need. So let me just give you some specifics. In talking with our children's ministry uh, pastor, I was talking with Luke this week. I just asked him, give me some numbers. And he said, we need three more workers in infant nursery during the ABF hour so that all the staff can only work once a month. We need one more person to serve in recess in the gym so that we have it covered one person working once a month. We need three more people to serve at check-in. That would be just standing out there at the desk, helping the organization and administration of it. We need teachers in all of our Sunday school classes, fours and fives, first through fourth, fifth and sixth, and a teacher is assistant in each of those classes. Ideally, we would have three teams rotating through the class each year. We currently have one or two in some cases. We need junior church teachers for fours and fives. It would be helpful to have two or three teams there. And so, church, um, this is where truth is practiced, where here's a need that is real, it's pertinent among us, it's an opportunity to serve, and instead of just saying, ah, uh, what you need to do is clothe yourself with humility toward everyone. Serve everyone. Third practice. Oh, by the way, you're saying, okay, what do I do from here, Nate? Um, Call the church office 
or send Luke an email and say, I'm in, just put me somewhere. Or I need training. He'll give you training. He'll help you with all of that. Third practice of humility encourages genuine fellowship. Uh, humility encourages genuine fellowship. When we see um, Christians coming together, there is this practice of one another, encouraging one another, helping one another. We can truly forget about ourselves and think about that person. Humility says, I can sit in this conversation and ask questions about what's going on in their life. Have you ever been in those conversations where you feel like, man, this is going nowhere because I keep asking questions and there's nothing in return? You're like, ah, don't be that person. Humility says, man, I want to know what's going on in your life. I want to be an encouragement to you. And so out of that, there is a genuine fellowship within the body of Christ. Now, in verse 5 here, we see the call to clothe ourselves with humility to one another, but we also see the reason here. Look at verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So you're like, if I step out in humility and think about others and practice this, what what we're seeing here in verse 5, I don't have any energy or strength to do it. And what Peter says is, oh, this is where you step out in faith, and God's promise is there for you. God opposes the proud. That's a military term of resistance, like he is against the proud. But what he does is he comes to the humble and overwhelms the humble with his grace. That's the contrast that you see. Opposition to the proud. God does not like the proud, but he loves the humble. He's going to give the strength that is needed for this kind of service. And I just think, how many of us can say, I've experienced the grace of God this last week in a very like testimonial, I can testify to it kind of way. Oftentimes when you hear people talking about the greatness of God, what is it that God has led them into? Oftentimes it's acts of obedience and sacrifice and work on his behalf. And that's where God just brings more and more grace into somebody's life. And it's like we get to stand under the waterfall of God's grace as we practice humility. Third relationship here. Humility in regards to your relationship with God. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, this is our relationship to God. And notice what he says here, where we are to humble ourselves. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What is the mighty hand of God? How would I practically humble myself under the mighty hand of God? As you look up this phrase, hand of God, it appears throughout scripture and it's pointing to a specific act of God. I'm going to give you just a few here. I think they're on the screen. Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Exodus 32, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now notice what the hand of God is doing in all of this. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24. O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? 
Chapter 4, verse 34, again, notice the mighty hand of God. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Chapter 6, verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. As you look at the mighty hand of God Throughout the Old Testament passages, what you see is God is using his mighty hand to deliver his people. It's, it's the hand of salvation that brings people out. This theme continues into the New Testament, and we see it in Mary's song in Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52. She uses a slightly different term here. It says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Notice, it's the strength of his arm here. God is at work in people's lives, and one of the means, or one of the pictures, I should say, that shows his salvation is this strong and mighty hand that he uses to deliver his people from their sin and bring them to himself. So this last week, we were over in northern Minnesota, up along Lake Superior. And on the west side of Lake Superior, that edge of the lake is all rocky. And there's cliffs that are there. And there's this one cliff called Palisade Head. It's about 300 feet tall. And it's just a sheer drop. We've gone out and visited. We didn't do it this last trip, but we've gone out and visited. And it kind of gives you that weak knees, tingly feeling inside. When I think about the mighty hand of God... Sometimes this picture just comes to mind of somebody who has scaled that cliff and is halfway up that cliff, <clears throat> and they found themselves barely holding on to the edge, maybe just with a one-inch grip on their fingers and maybe just a little bump out on their toes. As they look up, they can't go any further, but they're stuck now. They can't descend the cliff. They, they can only go up, but there's nothing more for them to grab, and so they're holding on just with their own strength. To fall would be death. And what they need is a mighty arm or a mighty hand to come down underneath them. And so I think in terms of kind of like Lord of the Rings where these giants can come along and this mighty arm can reach over and pick up a little hobbit and carry him up to a place of safety or something like that. In these pictures, this is God's mighty arm or mighty hand who delivers his people from the things they can't deliver themselves from specifically hell. In the Old Testament, this picture of redemption is that Israel couldn't get out of Egypt, so God with a mighty hand came in and gathered up his people and took them out of their despair and brought them redemption. And as it continues, Mary is saying, it's God's mighty arm that gathers people to himself that exalts the humble. Salvation has come. And so when we think about this, every human being this morning, each one of us, if we were to use this picture of a cliff, we have been stuck on the cliff and we can't go up and if we go down, we die. Every Christian is dangling over death, eternal death. 
And it's only through God's graciousness in Christ that he comes down with a mighty harm and scoops us up into himself. He is the one who saves us. It's with a mighty hand that God saves us. And so when Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, he's calling us to this picture of you didn't save yourself. Look, at there's nothing that you have to brag about. There's nothing that you can boast about. The arm of God's salvation has come into your life and he has scooped you up. Humble yourself towards God in this area. This is so important for us as a church that we would not be about ourselves, but that we would be about the great work that God is doing in salvation in our lives. And so Christians, contemplate, meditate, soak your mind up in the gospel regularly of what Jesus has done. This is this call now to the church that we would humble ourselves and bring ourselves now in terms of these relationships, not thinking about ourselves, but thinking about what God has done. It's going to be evident within the context of the church with your pastoral leadership. It's going to be evident in your relationship with others. It's going to be overflowing in your relationship with God. As people look at you this week, what kind of clothing and adornment will they see in your life? As you consider the gospel, the fruit of humility will continue to grow in your lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your good gifts to us. This morning, we are mindful of what you've given to us in the person of Jesus. We deserve death. We deserve eternal death. The wages of our sin are death. Thank you for Jesus, the Savior, and thank you for extending your mighty arm to us. With your heads bowed and before we receive communion, will you just examine your heart for unconfessed sin? And in that moment, you can also move from confession of sin to a thankfulness for what Jesus has done. Those who are serving communion, if you'll please come to the front. So God, right now, we're about ready to handle some tangible reminders of why we should be humble. And Lord, we ask that you would use this moment, use this moment as we look to Christ to humble our hearts, to humble our hearts towards you, to humble our hearts towards one another. God, please cultivate humility within us. Grow it so that it would be fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.